Secure messaging protocols like Signal have succeeded at making end-to-end -end encryption the norm in messaging more generally. Whether you're using WhatsApp, Wire, Facebook Messenger's secret chat feature, or Signal itself, you're benefiting from end-to-end -end encryption across all of your messages and calls, and it's so transparent that most users aren't even aware of it. One area in which current secure messaging protocols have stalled, however, is the ability to scale secure conversations to groups of dozens, hundreds, and even thousands of people. But the IETF's Messaging Layer Security, or MLS, effort aims to make that happen, bringing together a collaboration between Wire, Mozilla, Cisco, Facebook, as well as Academia, MLS wants to become the TLS of secure messaging and make it possible to hold secure conversations scaling to thousands of participants. But what are the real-world implementation risks involved? Are conversations even worth securing when you've got hundreds of potential leakers? Rafael Robert is Head of Security at Wire, a secure collaboration platform in Messenger. He has been working in secure messaging and applied cryptography for many years and co-hosts the crypto meetups in Berlin. He is one of the MLS authors and has contributed some of the functional aspects of MLS. Hey, Rafael. Hi, Nadim. How are you doing? Good. Who are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks a lot for um, coming on the show. So today's topic is a pretty interesting one. We're going to be talking about message layer security. Uh, secure messaging is a pretty big deal. You know, ever since uh, Signal has had a big success in spreading secure messaging and making it the norm, with a very important norm, I think, in uh, general digital communications. Um, I think the real shift started when um, Signal was able to uh, create this sort of... Um, uh, successor to OTR, and uh, we had the triple um, uh, Diffie-Hellman uh, key exchange, uh, and also the quadruple Diffie-Hellman key exchange, and also the axolotl ratchet, which was then, I believe, uh, implemented over at Wire. Uh, you guys use something similar. And also by uh, Facebook and uh, Skype and uh, Google and a million billion other things. Um, so we've had a lot of success in sort of normalizing secure messaging for two-party uh, chats. But um, this, this episode is going to talk about how, what are the challenges in, in making it uh, uh, work for more than two parties, making it work for an arbitrary number of parties. But first, maybe we should talk more about how secure messaging has changed in general since the introduction of Signal. Um, what what is your perspective on this? Ever since Signal was introduced, I believe uh, we let's say early 2010s, right? How has the field or the the space of secure messaging evolved, or messaging in general? Yeah, that's a good question. You already mentioned the off the record protocol, um, which I think maybe five years prior to Signal uh, really introduced some modern security guarantees that you still find today in Signal and and other protocols. And um, <clears throat> what, what Sigler really managed to achieve here is to uh, bring the off-the-record protocol and its, its ideas and um, its uh, security guarantees into the modern world. 
by allowing to have a protocol that uh, works asynchronously, actually. So this was one of the functional downsides of the OTR protocol. Uh, in version 3, uh, both participants had to be online at the same time, and that just didn't work anymore, uh, especially in the mobile world where phones are not online all the time. Um, so the user experience is quite different these days. Uh, maybe you remember uh, back in the day, Skype uh, would only transmit messages if both clients were turned on on the computer. Uh, so this was kind of awkward. This is not how text messaging works on phones. So the Signal protocol achieved that and a number of other things. And that really, you know, um, made it to be destined uh, for mobile communication in general. And so from, from a usability standpoint, from a usability standpoint, I guess you would say that the main achievement of Signal as a protocol was to make secure messaging more similar to the SMS use case, where you can send a message to someone and even if their phone is off, they would later uh, still receive that message when they turn their phone on. And this is fundamentally different from preceding protocols like OTR, where you had to wait, um, so-called synchronous protocols, where you had to wait for the other party to be online. Um, is that is that is that as the most relevant thing you think in terms of um, uh, impact, sort of user experience impact, or uh, yeah, I think so. Other? Yeah. Because you know that that way it was particularly easy to integrate it into other products like WhatsApp, for example. Uh, WhatsApp mimicked how text messages worked. Um, technically, it was different, but the user experience was very similar, and so they they could just adopt the Signal protocol to secure the whole thing, essentially. And this asynchronicity, you, you still see some problems, for example, in Telegram, where you have the secret conversations. I think, I don't know if it's still the case, but it used to be the case that you could not initiate them if the other party was not online uh, in the very beginning. After that, it became asynchronous. But for the, the first ex exchange of keys and messages, the other party had to... I still, I think it still is the case. You basically have to rely not on the other party being online per se. The lines are a bit blurred now because you have push notifications. Sorry, I can't hear you anymore. Oh, oh, sorry, I was muted. Uh, yeah, so I was saying that, um, so the line per se between being online and being offline in Telegram is a bit blurry because your phone can send messages while Telegram is in the background uh, or um, and, and, and can use these messages in order to establish a key exchange uh, and that would allow secure conversations or secret chats in Telegram to take place. But at the same time, I still think it's a synchronous uh, protocol. I still think that technically you have to be online uh, in order for it to work in Telegram. Right. All right. So we've uh, we've had Signal basically having a big success and also um, making it uh, sort of a norm, like I said earlier, with regards to secure messaging. How can you explain uh, Signal's rather sort of like balkanization um, when it comes to group messaging? So a lot of the messengers that use Signal, you know, uh, wire uh, or uh, wire uses a variant of Signal uh, or uh, WhatsApp or uh, all of these messengers sort of also have their group chat offering, but the way that that works tends to be a lot less unified and uh, sort of um, similar to the Signal specification 
when you compare it to two-party chat. So why did this balkanization happen? Um, and what are the limitations of the different kinds of um, signal-based group chats that you see in consumer applications? So I think it's fair to say that Signal has put the bar really high when it comes to security. But inherently, it's a protocol that was designed for a one-to-one -one session between two endpoints, uh, just like the off-the-record protocol. Um, and there are a number of apps, uh, messaging apps, that actually also cater for groups and louder groups. So in small groups, it still sort of works because uh, you end up having to encrypt every message for every endpoint um, separately. Uh, but if the group is small enough, you, you won't notice the difference. You run into a problem, however, if the groups get bigger, if you have, say, hundreds of participants and they each have several devices. So uh, you could have, you know, more than uh, 1000 encryption runs just to send a simple hello in a group chat. So this is really on the functional side, this is really a limitation. Uh, because first of all, computationally, um, this is quite intense. And even if that is becoming less of a problem, then there's still the problem of the bandwidth. Uh, you have varying network qualities uh, for mobile networks. Uh, so that, that was one of the strong incentives to see what could be done. And um, <clears throat> what happened for WhatsApp, for example, they went for an approach called um, sender keys, which builds on top of the signal protocol, but essentially makes the efficiency a little better in groups. Because what you do there is that one participant just generates a random key and fans it out to everybody, and then uses that key to encrypt the actual text messages. And that those messages, since everybody has already uh, got the key, can be fanned out by a server. So that makes it a lot more efficient. However, you do have a trade-off uh, with respect to the security guarantees. Uh, Post-compromise security uh, becomes either impossible or very expensive. And I think effectively in WhatsApp, uh, it's not really being done because... If one of the endpoints gets compromised, everybody would have to rotate their key and then uh, you have an order of magnitude of uh, O of N squared, which is super expensive. Well, that's actually a really interesting point because if you look at Signal for two parties today, there was a recent publication, which I mentioned in the first episode of Cryptography FM at the very end of the episode where a bunch of people at the CISPA Institute in Germany looked at different apps that you that implement signal facebook chat um whatsapp etc and found that they were radically different post compromise security guarantees for two party chat so actually it turned out that i believe only signal the original signal of the apps that they looked at actually implemented uh post compromise security guarantees as they are described in the protocol and as you're supposed to be getting them you know, per, per message forward secrecy if your device is compromised you recover from it pretty quickly if your device is cloned that's still uh, doesn't uh, mean that the window of compromise is very large. It turns out that out of the, I wish I had it in front of me, but out of the, let's say, eight or nine apps that they reviewed, only Signal and maybe one other app actually got this um, to work. And at the same time, if you actually go and use Signal, you know, um, so this isn't to, you know, hate on Signal, but uh, there is a significant reliability difference between synchronization of multiple uh, devices, synchronization, synchronizing your messages on multiple devices when you're using Signal, and when you're using something else, like maybe, for example, WhatsApp. And both of them use LibSignal, right? If you de decompile the WhatsApp binary, you'll find that a copy of LibSignal inside. Um, but the way that they handle sessions and the way that they handle, uh, apparently, uh, rekeying between uh, different sessions or different messages, 
and also, well, makes a difference in, in reliability, but also the way that they handle sessions in the sense that when you're using WhatsApp, your identity keys never leave the device. And you're basically just, uh, your browser is like a view into your phone. That's the multi-device paradigm of WhatsApp. And the multi-device paradigm of Signal is fundamentally different. Your identity key, your long-term keys actually get copied to your uh, computer, meaning that you can turn off your phone and still have um, Signal work, which is not something that you can do with WhatsApp if your phone uh, if your phone is off the whole you know WhatsApp desktop stops working. All of the other WhatsApp sign-ins that you have stop working. Um, but when you're... So my question after this like sort of rant about differences in signal and post-compromise security. You know, you're having so much trouble making sure that signal um, achieves the same post-compromise security guarantees in two-party chat, right? How has this impacted your views? In, and when I say you, I mean MLS. How has this impacted MLS's views on the importance of post-compromise security in group chats, given that you can see serious consequences and serious reliability and performance uh, hits um, that have to be uh, stomached, basically, in order for it to work in two-party chat. Yeah, I, I read the paper as well. It was really interesting. Of course, um, post-compromise security is a very vast field, and it always depends on, on what you apply to exactly. Uh, in that specific case, it was applied to the um, protocol itself. Um, you could also apply it, of course, to uh, authentication, for example. So one of the things that's slightly outside of the Signal protocol and, and also MLS, to be frank, um, is identity keys. So <clears throat> with Signal, uh, you have identity keys that are very, very long-lived, uh, typically the lifetime of the installation of the app uh, on the device. Uh, so you, you don't have PCS for identity keys. Uh, and that's one of the things we talked about um, within the MLS working group as well. Um, so this is still not clearly defined in MLS in the sense that we say it's on the application layer, meaning vendors who are going to implement MLS can decide what to do, but you could theoretically rotate your uh, identity keys and you should actually do that. Um, so what they did in that paper was a really uh, pragmatic approach. Wait, they, so did you, sorry, did you say rotate your identity keys? Yes. Your so that's interesting. Keys. Yeah. So that's interesting because I don't think that happens in Signal. Can you explain why uh, this is something that you would do in MLS and what's the difference that makes it necessary or 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 interesting or useful in MLS? Well, on, on a theoretical level, it's PCS. So um, Signal only uses that in the uh, X3DH initial exchange to bootstrap uh, a Signal session. Uh, and then you don't need the identity at all anymore. It's um, it's like implied that it's still authenticated afterwards. But you could um, you could start another session uh, with the same old key material, same identity key. Uh, so this is outside of the scope of the protocol. The protocol, the single protocol, really only applies to the session itself. Uh, in MLS, the mechanics are a little different. So you use a lot of signatures. Uh, because you have groups and so you have to use signatures, um, you don't have the symmetric state anymore that you have in a in a one-to-one -one setting like in Signal. Um, and so, you know, when, when you use a lot of signatures, the question is, uh, if your signature key gets compromised, uh, you also want to do something about that. Why? Why, why would I want... You know, if in, in Signal, you're basically... 
telling the user or telling the <laughs> cryptographic community, I'm not sure the user actually cares, that you, um, you know, if, if their device gets stolen, there is the risk of impersonation. And that's sort of intuitively acceptable because if someone steals my phone, they can use my phone to be me using my phone. You know, instead of my fingers typing on the screen, it can be their fingers because they stole the phone. Um, why is that all of a sudden something that you place a lot of importance on when it comes to MLS? And also, does it really make sense to adopt even more security goals in MLS when you're targeting a use case that's already more ambitious than Signal and Signal already is, is having serious sort of like performance and complexity trade-offs to make in order to meet its already ambitious security goals. Well, so PCS is not only if your phone gets stolen. PCS is uh, mostly applicable uh, when somebody makes a copy of your phone and you don't even notice it. So this is where uh, within the Signal protocol, uh, PCS kicks in. Uh, I think they call it future secrecy. So an attacker that just you know makes a copy of your phone, you don't notice it, and the attacker remains passive. The attacker is going to get evicted from the session um, uh, quickly. After one round trip, and we saw that in that paper, the attacker gets evicted. Um, and But the, the question is, can the attacker... Uh, convert from being uh, a passive attacker to an active attacker. So if if I get a, my hands on your phone quickly and I manage somehow to to make a copy of it, um, I won't be able to read the messages because of the PCS uh, properties of the protocol. But if I manage to initiate a session and impersonate you with somebody else, um, that person won't know um, that it's me because I have your signature key. And essentially okay. there, there is nothing you can do about it except for uninstalling signal from your phone at that point. But since you didn't notice anything, you're not going to do that. It's a very hard problem to solve. Um, so I'm not saying that this is, you know, gonna magically disappear, but thinking about it is, is definitely an important thing. Fair enough. Um, we should get back to this, but before we sort of like zoom in on specific aspects of secure messaging and MLS, I think it's important to sort of scale back and give it a more general introduction. So how did MLS come about? Who are the founders? What did each party contribute to the table? And uh, sort of what were the perceived problems and what were the um, targeted solutions or targeted um, goals to, to offset these problems um, when you were in the design stages, in the you know, high-level design stages of MLS. Yeah, it's definitely good to zoom out a little bit. We were deep diving into the nitty-gritty stuff now. Regarding PCS, that's not at all what motivated people in the beginning. So as I said, um, across the industry, the you know different companies were wondering uh, what you can do about group messaging. And there were also efforts uh, from academia at the same time um, so MLS did not just start, um, you know, at one point, it was really uh, a bunch of people uh, that were not even connected in the beginning that were wondering about the same questions. Um, and I believe it was in 2016 and the ITF, um, I'm not sure about the number now, um, maybe 97, uh, that took place in Berlin. Uh, where some of these folks um, got together and um, started talking about it a little bit. Um, and clearly, we identified that there was a need to to target group messaging. 
the, the problem, as I said, which is a good problem to have in a way, is that Signal had put the bar very high. So if you wanted to do something that uh, comes close to that, um, we knew that it was not going to be very easy. So yeah, scalability was definitely uh, the most motivating factor there uh, to start the whole MLS effort. And um, so the whole thing got a little more formal and we tried to reach out to every possible stakeholder that has anything to do with messaging, be it in the industry or in academia. And then in early uh, 2018, in February, at the ITF 101, we had the uh, birds of a feather uh, which is in, in ITF speak, uh, that's when a working group is being formed and, and that got accepted as a valid uh, goal to work towards to. And um, so that, that, that was essentially when MLS as an ITF working group uh, was born. And ever since we've been iterating um, in interim meetings, in plenary meetings, etc., so you've managed to get the attention of a lot of um, big stakeholders and big groups. So Mozilla, Cisco, Facebook, uh, Wire, uh, well, Wire, uh, and also people from academia, University of Oxford, INRIA Paris. So that's a pretty big list. I mean, Facebook alone, if they implement this, that's going to be across WhatsApp, maybe Instagram, uh, almost definitely Facebook Messenger as well. And um, what were the goals, what, what, what were the top priorities for these companies, for these very sort of like real world, you know, we don't care about security proofs as much as getting the thing rolling and, and, and performing on our servers and securing conversations for quadrillions of people or billions of people or whatever. Um, how did this look like from their perspective? Well, so, so once we identified who the stakeholders were and... Um we were essentially uh, virtually sitting around the table and uh, so everybody brought forward what they really cared about in terms of security guarantees and uh, we, we tried to see if there was a common denominator of things we would like to tackle. Um, so we, we wanted to keep, you know, all the things that are already there from Signal from the off the record protocol. Uh, and then we saw that we discussed what else we could add to it. It was sort of a wish list in a way. And um, so there, there were some things that didn't make into uh, MLS, um, but most of the things did. And again, I, I think that the primary motivation was to find something that, that works for groups. I, I can imagine that um, if you have these large rollouts of billions of devices with I don't know, trillions of messages being sent every day, then uh, performance does matter a lot. And of course, another goal, since this is now an ITF effort, was to have a very clear spec that, that is, you know, as well defined as possible and that everybody can implement and to really have a standard in the end. Yeah, having a spec is pretty important, isn't it? I, I agree. I think it's important when you make a secure messaging protocol to publish a spec, you know. Um, so let's talk about MLS in technical detail, since we're talking about the spec. Um, you, I, I look at the spec and I've been following the history a little bit. There are some interesting terms that maybe people who are first looking at MLS may find confusing, such as ART and TreeChem and Epics and uh, a whole weird way of having like these different server components and um, they're, um, they're managing the conversation in a strange way 
or rather in a different way from from regular uh, signal where you know you look at signal the server's role is extremely tiny compared to pretty much a lot of other protocols like putting mls aside like if you compare what the server has to do in webrtc for example the server has a very significant role compared to something like signal um, but MLS sort of also has server components that are more active. So I'm just, you know, throwing things here to sort of like outline how different this protocol is, but maybe we should go step by step. So if we start with the key exchange, we see that we first had a key exchange called ART, A-R-T, that was proposed. And then uh, this was, um, this had like a sort of compete ne competing uh, proposal called TreeCam. So maybe you can talk about these two and how these two proposals um, compete and uh, why are they considered to be the best we have right now for establishing a group key exchange on a group secure conversation. Sure. So I think ART, which stands for Asynchronous Ratcheting Tree, uh, is really what started it all on the academic side and, and algorithmic side. Because um, it was based on a brilliant idea, and that is to uh, not look at members in a group linearly, but put them in a binary tree. And um, sometimes you have this magic moment where you can transform a linear problem into a logarithmic one by using binary trees. And, and that turned out to be true for art. Um, so the, the idea there is that on, on top of the, the, the linear list of members, you also have uh, these tree nodes that you can populate with values. And um, you can all of a sudden have operations on the tree that you don't have to do separately for every member in the group. But instead, you traverse the tree uh, from the leaf level where you have all the members all the way to the root. Um, and, and that by design in a binary tree, uh, is much shorter a path than uh, talking to everybody individually. So the on the um, cryptographic side, art was based on Diffie-Hellman, and it was a contributive way of calculating a group key, uh, which is great in many ways. Uh, the downside on the practical side was that it was not really designed for dynamic groups. So we thought about it for a little while, how, you know, how you could actually change the, the design there to be more adequate because groups are inherently dynamic in the real world. You don't have large, especially not large groups where people don't join and leave all the time. Um, but around the same time, tree came, uh, came around. So you already said that this came from Inria in Paris. Um, and um, the, the idea is very similar. We still have a binary tree. But instead of using Diffie-Hellman, we use the uh, the chem mechanism, the key encapsulation mechanism, and that proved to offer a lot more flexibility. Um, all of a sudden, uh, you could do things like add people, uh, remove people from the tree, uh, have blank nodes in the tree, nodes that don't have any any value. Um, all of that became possible. Also has a nice side effect that um, going forward uh, for post quantum resistance chems uh, right now at least are uh, more adequate because the um, the NIST uh, round we saw that everything's based on chems that might change in the future of course but right now for the for the foreseeable future uh, chems are great for post quantum resistance if you just wanna change the, yeah. the crypto primitive there. So you're, you're um, talking about the recent NIST competition, which just announced the finalists um, for um, new post-quantum cryptographic primitives. 
you had um, cams and signatures. So yeah, that does indeed, I hadn't thought about that, but that does play really well into new protocols uh, basing themselves on cams, especially if you um, want to assume that, um, you know, the, the quantum apocalypse does end up happening soon and we have to switch sort of away from classical Diffie-Hellman. It makes sense to make your protocols um, have a sort of chem-shaped hole for primitives than a classical Diffie-Hellman or elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman shaped hole. Okay, so binary trees makes it more efficient. Tree chem improves on that. Great. Uh, how does MLS handle messaging after a conversation is started? How are, you know, again, you have operations here that are not present in typical two-person signal chats, like, for example, people joining and leaving a group, and also potentially, I guess, administrator um, uh, operations, people, you know, getting kicked out of a group, maybe even invited into a group. So I guess I want to ask that first. Does MLS take into account sort of like ACL group stuff, uh, access control stuff, like admins managing groups, or is that out of scope? And aside from that, how do you deal with these group-specific operations in the protocol, like joining and leaving and just having big groups? Yeah, so I'll try to address all of these questions. Um, the, the last one first. Um, MLS does not really care about SELs at that level. This is out of scope by design because we anticipate that it's going to be used in a, in a variety of different applications that um, have very different needs. So the idea there is that this happens uh, on what we call the application layer. Uh, it's fully possible to do that, but you, you don't do this at the core protocol level uh, directly. So yeah, you, you already hinted at the fact that MLS now has a much larger scope than one-to-one -one sessions. So what MLS does effectively is that it lets you manage groups. Uh, so you, besides the, the actual messages that you have in one-to-one -one protocols, which effectively are then going to be text messages most of the time, uh, MLS has some control uh, messages like um, adding someone, removing someone, or somebody updates their own key material. That's a very important thing uh, for PCS. So MLS takes care of a good part of the group management there. Uh, and the SEL kicks in simply uh, because you can say there is a certain policy. Only administrators of a group can add other people. If somebody else tries to do that, you just reject that control message. It's as simple as that. Um, so you, you have full flexibility there. But what's interesting also on the security side here is that um, we now have something that didn't really exist before. So with one-to-one -one protocols, if you use them in a group, every member of a group is going to encrypt the, the message uh, n-1 times for the rest of the group. But when you receive a message, you actually don't know exactly who the message was encrypted for. You don't know who the sender of the message was thinking they were encrypting it for. So now with these control messages and, and the, the, the view and the group, you, you get a cryptographic guarantee that if I send a message in a group and you receive that message, you know that I was seeing the same set of members in the group than you do. Um, so the, you can say this is a little theoretical and in practice it doesn't really matter. But I think it's a, it's a nice property to have of a protocol. Oh, it definitely does matter in practice. So this is something that uh, I believe is called transcript consistency. And there are some real-world attacks, right? Like you, you could say, for example, I'm going to send a message uh, to, you know, just I can, I can fork the group history. I can send a message that says, do you want to get ice cream? 
to the group. And then I can send a message that also says to another, you know, sort of forked uh, part of the group, do you want to, I don't know, assassinate the king or something? And then people will respond, yeah, sounds like a great idea, you know, and that's the classical example. Yeah, yeah I, right, I, think, right. I, I think that's really valuable uh, to be able to relate uh, people inside a group to a message that was sent. Um, and I, I, I know for sure that trans transcript consistency is something that has been a concern in group messaging protocols for almost 10 years now. Um, I, so, I used but to be just to be clear, uh, transcript so. consistency is not fully achieved with MLS. Um, you have that for the control messages, but you don't have that for the actual text messages. I see. So there, you could still have this sort of out of order problem there. Uh, mm -hmm. where, where this classical example applies. It was one of the, the ideas we had initially and it, it turned out to be a deferred goal because achieving that in an asynchronous setting is extremely hard um, and prevents you from doing other things. So you, you don't fully have that for the actual transcript of, of text messages. So maybe this is something for a, a future version of MLS. Fair enough. Um, okay, so let's talk about real-world concerns, right? I touched upon this earlier. Uh, how easy is MLS going to be to implement? Sounds like sounds like a pretty giant headache to implement, honestly. Like if you look at Signal, already the ratcheting scheme there is kind of complicated if you compare it to just a regular uh, transport layer protocol implementation. Um, what are the different components of the stack? You know, you did we did mention that the server is going to end up having a bit more of an of a role in MLS. So I'm, you know, someone who just got hired at Facebook and I need to implement MLS, or maybe I'm running my own open source messenger and I want to implement MLS. What does it look like if I'm coming from a signal where I'm more familiar with how signal, for example, works for a cryptography or a cryptography engineer? Yeah, good question. So um, at the end of the day, we're still implementing it and we're still working on the spec. Uh, so I cannot give you a final answer, but obviously, since you know the complexity is higher than Signal or other protocols, this is also going to be a little more complicated to implement. Uh, one of the things that is hopefully going to make it easier is that we have a clear spec. Obviously, we have to do some more work on that to to make it absolutely crystal clear. Um, it has just grown organically over time, uh, so I need to do a bit of polishing. But the other thing is. Um, since we have a standard, or since we will have a standard, you don't have to implement MLS yourself all the time. Hopefully there will be an implementation that is going to suit your needs and that you can just pick in the same way you do that for other crypto libraries like OpenSSL or Web Crypto or whatever. Okay. Well, let me play devil's advocate here. So. We're having these uh, large uh, companies implementing MLS, and I assume that this is going to be useful for things like, or used for things like groups of 100 people, 200 people, 1,000 people, 10,000 people. Um, does it really make sense to secure a conversation when you've got 10,000 participants? I mean, isn't the risk of uh, conversation information, screenshots being leaked really high in those scenarios or, you know, the wrong person getting invited and then, you know, just screenshotting the whole thing and posting it on Twitter. So what does it really make sense after a certain number of people to still have a group secure messaging protocol um, as a standard for, 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 for groups of, of those sizes? And if so, why? 
Sure. I mean, the, the question is, where do you draw the line between, you know, small groups and big groups? Of course, on a social level, you have the problem that the bigger the group gets, the harder it is to keep a secret. And at some point, of course, you can wonder if it, you know, makes sense to even call it a secret because so many people already know about it. Um, but I mean, here we talk about a technical protocol. So um, the, the idea here is that you clearly have two groups of people, those who are, you know, in the MLS group and those who are outside. Um, if you if you don't end-to-end -end encrypt things, then uh, essentially you give access to the outsiders immediately. Whereas here, you try and, and confine that to the insiders. And insiders and outsiders, they have very different motivations for leaking stuff. So it might still happen that it leaks from an insider. But what we can exclude here is that an outsider is, is going to leak the secret. And of course, there, there are also some real-world scenarios where large groups effectively makes sense. Uh, for example, in enterprise messaging, you can imagine a company that has tens of thousands of employees or uh, maybe even hundreds of thousands um, that clearly wants to have some confidentiality on uh, you know, messages it's sending around, even if it just broadcast messages to, to everybody. You, you don't necessarily want to take the risk of that you know, being leaked on the network layer or server layer. That brings me to my next question, and potentially the last question, given that we're kind of running out of time. Um, where do you see this going beyond um, just you know the messengers that we discussed? And I, this is a really important question for me because um, I think one of the most valuable things about uh, the Signal Protocol sort of saga, aside, like I, I don't think you know you, you can say it brought you know post compromise security. And that's valuable. Great. I agree that's valuable. You can say that it made SMS, um, the SMS use case sort of like mimicable in secure messaging. You don't need the other person to be online. That's certainly super valuable because it means that people can uh, use secure messaging in a sort of like use case that they're familiar with and then it's still secure. So that's great. But one of the most valuable things is that it was able to make secure messaging the norm. So if you're launching a new, a new messaging app, uh, you are some, you know, whatever, uh, some new company, TikTok, okay? TikTok didn't exist earlier and now it does. And let's say TikTok decides to launch a messenger. Because everyone is used to messengers being secure because of Signal, you know, people are used to all the messengers out there virtually having end-to-end -end encryption. WhatsApp has end-to-end -end encryption, Wire, uh, Facebook Messenger, and so on. They're going to look at this app and they're going to basically wonder, does it also have end-to-end -end encryption? And if it doesn't, then it's going to be a fishy situation. It's going to be unusual. And I think that is the most important contribution that Signal has on the world. And I, 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 I think we don't realize how lucky we are that this norm has been established, especially because when you look at group messaging apps like um, Slack, um, whatever, all Microsoft Teams, uh, all those video conferencing applications, the norm there does not seem to be similar. And even so, when a new one launches and it has like terrible encryption, no one cares, right? There, there isn't the sort of same scrutiny that you would see applied to, uh, you know, phone-based, uh, I would say, uh, two-party messaging applications such as uh, WhatsApp. Uh, my question to you is, and maybe that's, you know, not your jurisdiction or maybe it's overly ambitious or of a question, but do you think MLS can really potentially play a role in making it such that even in those group-based applications, a new norm is established. And so I know that 
a lot of the times when something like Slack doesn't use um, secure encrypted messaging, they have a very good reason. And the reason is that they want message history to be ultra accessible. And that's really important for companies. So you can't really blame them for not having that. So do you think that MLS can sort of establish a new norm there? And will it address the things that um, it has to address in order to convince these large players that are not exactly Facebook Messenger, but also similar, like for example, Slack, to adopt it? Well, it's kind of hard to foresee you know, what, what the future beholds here, but I think it's a great example uh, that you just gave with startups. So it, I, I personally believe it's going to get increasingly more difficult to launch a new messaging product if it doesn't have end-to-end -end encryption. Uh, you know, maybe not from day one, but soon after people are going to ask if, if, if there is any sort of encryption and, and what it really protects. Um, and, you know, there, MLS is one of the alternatives you can pick from. And since it was designed for the, the goals of so many different stakeholders, there's a good chance that MLS might work in that setting. Uh, and also you brought up the um, enterprise messaging again. So there, we, we don't see a lot of end-to-end -end encryption in that space at all right now. So one of the reasons is what you just said with Slack. Uh, you want message history. This is indeed not something that you can just encrypt using MLS, uh, obviously. Uh, but the, the, there's another problem there, and that's the problem of scalability. So um, that one might just get easier once MLS is there. Of yeah. course, there is not just one messaging protocol, you know, one size fits all. I don't think that that exists when it comes to secure messaging protocols. There are always trade-offs in terms of functionality and scalability, performance and, and security guarantees you get. Um, I, but I think now you have one, one more you can pick from, and I think it covers a relatively broad range of applications. So um, if I look at the Wire website, you know, your, your uh, head of security at Wire, uh, you guys uh, claim to have the most secure collaboration platform. Modern day collaboration meets the most advanced security and superior user experience. I have personally used Wire for many years, and it's a pretty good app. So uh, I guess my last question would be, what do you guys at Wire look, at, look for? Uh, what are you looking most forward to when it comes to MLS? So in terms of functionality, we're really looking forward to being able to scale groups you know, in, into the thousands. Of, of members you can have in a group. Yep. Scale, that's scale, scale. Yeah, that's, that's definitely, definitely a term, you know, when you're working in cryptography as, as a sort of like science or, or just purely as an engineer, you tend to miss this notion of scale, but then you would talk to people who work at startups and that's all they talk about, scalability, being able to scale. And it's, it's definitely a very difficult problem. And I, I think that people like me have the privilege not to worry about it, but I think that if I'm to put myself in your shoes or in the shoes of startups in general, it becomes pretty obvious that this is the really biggest thing that you have to worry about, especially in the case of a you know ambitious, advanced, privacy-preserving encryption. Uh, okay, so I guess uh, we're over time, and that's okay. It was a good conversation. Uh, Raphael, anything to say before we sign off? I think that was a great interview. Thank you very much. Awesome. Okay. Well, maybe next time it'll be you who's conducting, well, not conducting, uh, participating in a great interview because all you have to do is send us an email and you can be you who's talking about your amazing new cryptography research, your super scalability, very scaly, scalable design for encryption. 
or uh, anything else that has to do with cool new research in cryptography, new cool technology or software in applied cryptography, come have a conversation. This is what Cryptography FM is all about. A new platform for people to talk about stuff that is cool in the world of applied cryptography. But whether you're a listener or an active participant, I hope to see you again next week on Cryptography FM.